Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Bruce Cleveland, multiple-time Silicon Valley startup chief marketing officer, founding partner of Wildcat Venture Partners with Jeffrey Moore, and author of Traversing the Traction Gap, one of my favorite B2B technology books of all time. And today, we're going to be covering three main topics with Bruce. Number one, what is the Traction Gap framework? Second, what are the four pillars of the Traction Gap framework? And third, what are Bruce's lessons learned from applying the framework in practice, both through his own very successful Silicon Valley career, but also to the participants in his research? Bruce, please take a moment to give a brief overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics that Measure Up podcast. Great. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity, and uh, I always enjoy talking about this subject. Obviously, it's a passion of mine. The, the reason I developed this framework was really out of uh, frustration, frustration with a lot of really smart people who I interacted with over the course of my career as an operating executive or an investor and watching their companies fail. I think the evidence is pretty clear. You can read a lot of different tales of woe, but roughly 80, 85% of all startups fail. Um, roughly 40 to 60%, depending on the research that you've read, 46% of all products fail products inside incumbent companies, that is. And I began to have some pretty legitimate success with the products either I delivered as an operating executive or as an investor. And I wanted to demystify that process. So my background, I think, serves me well in that. I was one of the, I don't know if I was employee 100, but it was certainly around 100 or so at Oracle, when it was a small private company on Sand Hill Road in Menlo Park, and did that for a number of years, held the position of around the Unix product division. At that point, Oracle was divided and operated and organized by operating system, things like VMS and MBS and other things that really aren't prevalent today. So I worked on the Unix system, learned a lot from some really smart people. From there, I went on to Apple to run a large engineering division, all of their object technology development work, and uh, a bunch of products that Apple delivered, primarily for enterprises, not really consumer, which sort of defines the journey that I've taken. I'm not really in the consumer side of the business. I'm in the B2B side of the business. It's where I've invested and where I've operated. I joined Tom Siebel in 1996, April of 96, a few months before we went public at Siebel Systems, and I held a variety of roles over 10 years there. I joined as the VP of marketing working for, we didn't call it a CMO at the time, but that's what she was, the co-founder of the company, Pat House, doing mostly corporate marketing things, things that I had never really done before, but I learned a ton from Pat. She's kind of the Sheryl Sandberg before Sheryl, if you know what I mean. She is a, a powerhouse and a, a great person, a, a great mentor of mine. Did that for a number of years. Then um, Tom asked me to take over and build a biz dev function, an alliances function. We did that and learned quite a bit in the process, built it from a few partnerships to nearly a thousand. Actually, an HGBS case was written on the program that we developed. And then I became the, the head of product, the guy that was running it, uh, David Schmeyer, pretty well-known person in the Valley. 
David uh, retired, at least for a time being, and I took over all the product development and running products there. So I did that for about 10 years. And then we sold the company to Oracle, chose not to go back to Oracle and joined a small little venture firm. Here's a little fun trivia fact for those of you in Silicon Valley. So I joined Interwest Partners and they happened to be located on Sand Hill Road in the very same small little set of offices where Oracle was housed back in uh, 96. So it was one of those back to the future kind of things. Did that for about 15 years, well, actually 10 years with them, and then uh, started another venture firm with two other fellows called Wildcat Venture Partners, and we invested in a bunch of companies. I invested in a, an idea that became a company called Marketo, which was fairly successful. Very fortunate to be involved with Phil, John, and Dave uh, in that process. Invested through an acquisition, I invested in uh, Workday. Velocity, which is a company David Schmeier created and sold to Salesforce recently. And a variety of others, not the least of which was a company called C3AI, which Tom Siebel started in 2009. And I was an investor and advisor for many years. And then um, I finished my career operating and investing with Tom working with him for two, a little over two or three years as his CMO to go from a private company to a public company. We took C3AI public in uh, 2020, December of 2020, under the MY New York Stock Exchange symbol of AI, quite appropriately, and then did that for another year or so, and then told Tom, it was time for me to turn the keys over to some the younger generation and let them manage the process. And so uh, here I am today doing a bunch of different things and uh, enjoying myself. Bruce, Oracle, Apple, Siebel, and then C3AI. Those has pretty good pedigree. <laughs> and we're going to take advantage of all that experience and success in the next 25 minutes. So first, let's talk a little bit about that traction gap framework. And first of all, what is it? Kind of what is the framework really? The traction gap framework is just a way to organize your thoughts of where you are from ideation, that is the thought process of creating a company, uh, what the product would be, what the market would be, how you would position and sell it, all the way through until it achieves what Jeffrey Moore might say, escape velocity, until it achieves scale. And I wanted to create some really easy to understand vernacular terminology, if you will, so that way people could look at where they are or where they were in their journey and what they needed to do in order to successfully move from what I call value inflection points. And those are really easy to understand in that as your company proves it can build a product, proves it can market the product, sell the product, you begin to diminish risk for investors. And you also, at the same time, amplify the valuation of your company. So the traction gap framework consists of, I borrowed from Steve Blank and Eric Reese this concept of minimum viable product. I decided to use that type of terminology because people are grounded in it. We understand something called product market fit. And so I decided rather than introduce something different, although I define MVP a little differently than others, I decided to use those type of acronyms because people learn well when you don't have to focus on a lot of new things. So we start out with an idea. We then move over a period of time to an initial product release, also minimum viable category. I'll explain what that is in a moment. We eventually hopefully reach something that we all call minimum viable product. From there, we go on to begin to sell and learn a lot to something that we call minimum viable repeatability or MVR. That essentially is I've demoed the product, I've positioned the product. I'm beginning to learn that if I say this and I demoed that, finally, we go from 
a PowerPoint company where it's a bunch of slides and how good it could be to some real metrics. We can begin to identify how long does it take to sell something, close rates, what works in the sales process, pricing. So MVR, minimum viable repeatability is a very important value inflection point in the company because for a lot of venture capitalists, that's the first time that they'll invest. A lot of VCs, I'd say 90, 95% of them won't invest in your company until you reach that. They won't call it MVR, but it's a time when you can actually use that MBA or those spreadsheets and metrics to begin to evaluate the success of the company, CAC ratios, churn, all these things that are important where you can look at stuff. Before then, you don't really have much to go on uh, in terms of an investor. And you don't really know quite how to talk about your story other than how good it will be as the entrepreneur. And from there, we take it to something called minimum viable traction. And this is where we reach uh, the point where we begin to scale the company. And so what I did was I developed these concepts and these value inflection points. Then I researched by meeting with dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of CEOs, CMOs, salespeople, et cetera. And I began to put together a set of prescriptive techniques to go from ideation to this minimum viable category, initial product release, minimum viable product, minimum viable repeatability, and minimum viable traction. It turns out there's patterns that begin to emerge. There's a time frame. There's a certain amount of time that you get by the venture or an investor community to reach these different value inflection points. Take too long, you become disinteresting. Shorter, you'll become more interesting. Um, but are you burning a lot of cash? So I wanted people to have these guideposts, if you will, because in the B2B space for sure, and this does apply in the B2C space for startups and strangely enough for incumbent companies to release products, the metrics might be different, slightly different. We can talk about that, but everybody must go through this phase. And if you fail to gain traction, in a certain amount of time, and we talk about that in the book, if you fail to gain traction, it's likely that you will end up in sort of the dustbin of history. You won't get funding. Your company will likely dissolve. And that's a real shame. And that's the reason I wrote the book is because I've met a lot of really smart entrepreneurs, a lot of really successful people who failed to understand that they needed to go through this process. And maybe the most important thing that came out of the book from my standpoint was the recognition that all companies need to become and all management teams need to become market engineers. Just because you build a product doesn't mean it's going to be successful. This is probably one of the biggest failures of most companies. They need to engineer that market around product revenue team and systems. And we'll talk about that as well. So this is nothing more than a framework by which you can assess how you're doing versus how hundreds of other companies have fared at a certain point in time in their company where to focus your attention, where to focus the management team's attention, the investment team's intention, and to create a common language, a common language that's easy for the startup team to use, to discuss, and easy for the investor to discuss with the startup team. So that's what it is. Wow. There was a lot to unpack there, but I'm going to start very close to the beginning of the framework, and that is the concept of the minimal or minimum viable category. So many entrepreneurs go to that ideation right to the product. And I think they miss the uh, entire concept of, is this a category that can be big? And Bruce, let's be fair, with Salesforce automation going into CRM, you've been involved in a company that defined an entire category. So tell us a little bit more about the how importance of the MVC. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Rad. This is an area where I think most companies, most startups stumble because most are led by technologists. Communication skills, the ability to position message, these are part of minimum viable category. They're not always part of the skill set or the strongest skill set in all these companies. So minimum viable category is really about the creation of a new category. If you try to launch a company into a category that already exists, the market leader has defined the the attributes of that category. And the, the person and the team that really did a good job about just explaining this, Christopher Lockhead and Play Bigger, I think they did a phenomenal job explaining why. And I think Chris has taken that to the next level with his uh, Pirates podcast. I think that the companies that fail, it really isn't around the product. I found that most companies, most teams, even our own teams, when I led them, could build a product. It you know may have taken a little longer, more capital, but it usually did or usually could do what we had set out to do. The issue is is that we are not living in a, a field of dreams. Just because you build it, people will not come. You need to engineer a new market. You need to describe it differently. Good example, you just talk about CRM. I, I think Siebel, I think we did a very good job creating a new market. It was called Salesforce Automation initially. I don't think we came up with CRM. I think Mary Coleman did uh, when she was working at another company. We decided that we needed to conscript that or we would lose it. But Tom did a phenomenal job engineering a new category by defining the attributes of what should be in customer relationship management. And I think we did a very good job. The interesting part of that is that there ended up in that and Siebel, I think, I think it still holds the record for being the fastest growing company in US history. I think we went from a roughly when I joined about 2 million in revenue to roughly 2 billion in revenue in about four years, five years. So we did a pretty good job there defining that category and making it compelling and compulsory for companies to use. The issue was it was designed entirely for the sort of the top end of the market. What Mark Benioff did brilliantly was not come up with CRM, but he came up with this notion that we all know of as cloud computing. And at the time it had different names, you know, utility computing or internet-based computing or whatever, but Mark did a phenomenal job defining a new category called cloud computing and then chose CRM as the first one to go after because it was a recognized category. A lot of companies couldn't buy Siebel's products, way too expensive took uh, for those companies, required an IT team, et cetera. And Mark wisely positioned himself, not as a CRM company, but cloud CRM, a new category of CRM technology, and then deftly positioned Salesforce there. So there's a great example of carving out a new category, defining the attributes of that category and forcing incumbents to play off against those new attributes. You try to do it the other way. If somebody were to come in and try to create an enterprise CRM on-premise technology, and many did, you know, Siebel slaughtered them. So this is a great example. And there's many other great examples that I point out in the book of people doing this. So Bruce, I don't want to drill down too much on the Siebel, but it's, it's so interesting. I got to ask this question. Are there two or three kind of secrets or tips you can give our listening audience that's thinking about category creation? Because I had Nick Meta on the podcast the other day, and either they helped Roy create the customer success category, but he said it's a high risk and it takes a lot of work to create a category. What's your perspective? Two or three secrets to it? Yeah. One, not everybody is cut out to be a category creator. And why do I say that? I say it because not everybody is articulate and capable of defining these things well. 
Um, not everybody wants to. I think a good example of this is with Marketo, one of the companies that I talked about that when I invested was just three guys and an idea. Uh, me and my colleague at Interwest, uh, Doug Pepper, did that investment. And I think Phil wisely decided that that John Miller, who was his co-founder, made a better spokesperson in the industry, kind of to define this in writing the books, et cetera. So Phil was phenomenal operating executive and also, by the way, a pretty good speaker himself. But I think what he did and what they did was decide that John would become the uh, sort of the father of marketing automation. And he was featured as such. So, you know, I would stress that it's really a team sport. And so you need people on your team who like to do this and are capable of doing this. That's number one. Number two, the other secret is that you need to be very, very clear, not just within, you know, at the CEO level, but across the entire team or what you're trying to accomplish in market engineering, this new category. And market engineering is a term I came up with when I was trying to write the book because I was trying to figure out, I got to position this book. I have to position what is this thing? Why is it different than crossing the chasm or what? And so... When you're thinking about the words you're using and what you're going to say, you really do need to redact it down to just some very basic concepts that are both new and provocative. That needs to be interesting to people. That needs to be something that they haven't necessarily heard before. The industry that we're in, people are very smart, very busy. And so if you don't have something of value to say, something that's going to change their perception of the way the, the world is to the way the world could be, that compels them to follow you, whether that's digitally, you know, or in the our analog world at a conference or a book or whatever. If you can't do that, then it's going to be very challenging to uh, create a new category. Category creators, you know, probably one of the best is Steve Jobs. You know, I think uh, he's iconic and he didn't invent, you know, the phone. He didn't invent the computer. He reinvented or reimagined, if you will, that's a kind of a tired term, but what they could be. And so he created new categories, you know, multiple times, very, very successfully. So I agree with what Nick said. I think it is difficult, but I, unfortunately, I think it's must do. If you can't do this, if the company can't do it, at best, I think you could be a fast follower, but you're, you're not going to ever gain that 76% of the market, which is what Christopher talks about, that the market leader, the market maker, the engineer of the market, the benefits that inure to that that team, that person, that company, it just, everything else pales in comparison. So um, that's why I think it's critical to do. And I don't disagree that it, it, it isn't necessarily easy to do. And Bruce, I wish my podcast was a two-hour podcast. I could be Joe Rogan and go long form, but <laughs> we're already coming up to it. So I, let's circle back to the traction gap. And the one thing that I wanted to talk to you about beyond the MVC, the category, is the minimum viable repeatability, right? This is really going from category and company creation to scaling, at least the early part of scaling. Is MVR measurable? And if so, what are the two or three key measurements to know that you've entered into that phase of the traction gap? That's a great question. I think it's both qualitative and quantitative in nature. And it's not always a an exact number. It depends on like your ACV, your average contract value. For example, a company like a C3AI, where the average contract value is between three and $5 million, the number of times that you need to have sold something may be different than perhaps a low ACV company like a Salesforce was or uh, or Marketo, et cetera, where you need a lot more evidence. So I'm going to couch my answer in those terms, which is 
it's the time when the management team and the investors, I think the board, agree that there are enough metrics that show that you begin to identify, create a lead, you know, whether it's a, a contact to an MQL, a marketing qualified lead, that you can then convert that into a sales accepted lead and then finally into a closed order. And you're doing it enough times where it's roughly taking the same amount of time. And so you're beginning to realize, okay, if I say this and do that, I can be pretty sure that we can generate uh, revenue from it. So I also counsel companies not to hire a sales team, SDRs or anything until you reach this MVR point, because you're going to burn a lot of capital as a company trying to figure out, are you at MVR? And you don't want salespeople, SDRs especially, making up the positioning or messaging of a company. So you got to know that your messaging is working, that what you say when you're on the phone or what you say in your lead generation, et cetera, it's working, that you're getting conversion rates that are industry standards, that you're within you know, serious decision posts a lot of this or other people post a lot about what the metrics are for this. But as you publish many metrics, you're beginning to look at and go, hmm, I think our, our CARR is working. I think that our um, acquisition percentages are happening and in a way that meet the test of the industry. Do not delegate your positioning, messaging, et cetera, and your sales cycle until such point in time when you feel that you've reached this magical point. So in the traction gap framework, there's these pillars. And so these pillars are product, revenue, team, and systems. And at the point of MVR, you've pretty much realized that the product is working. You've released a couple, people are using it. When you go to to market it, people react positively to your um, either thought leadership work or your demand gym work. That when you enter a sales cycle, it's, you know, roughly mas o menos, you know, you're closing deals uh, within an expected amount of time and that, that you're not overly spending. You're not spending too much to acquire these companies. So MVR is kind of a magical point for an organization, but I, and I've left out a really important part and that's team. Team, it turns out, is the common thread through all these value inflection points of MVR, MVP, MBT, whatever. Your team needs to, at that point, be a relatively small team of product, uh, sales, marketing, et cetera. And at MVR is the point at which you're confident, your investors are confident that, okay, we've got kind of the recipe for how to generate revenue. It works. You know, we can, we can make money. We, we may overspend in sales and marketing on purpose, but we're not overspending and, and not realizing any gain in market share. So it's really important. It's a critical point in a company's journey to success. And it is measurable because there are, for example, there are groups like yourself, which identify metrics that you can begin to apply before MDR you're mostly this PowerPoint company. And so you can't really use metrics. In fact, the reason I wrote this book was to give you some kind of pseudo metrics that you might be able to use that aren't really quantitative in nature, they're more qualitative in nature. But at MVR, now you've got something to hang your hat on. You can actually go to the venture capital industry and say, here's how we're doing and measure and compare yourself. Prior to that, tough to do. You mentioned, you just hit on a little bit, the four pillars of the traction gap. Product, team, revenue, and systems, correct? Correct. And I was listening to another interview that you gave. You were, I think, maybe even you were a little surprised about which one was so critical at every stage through the traction gap. And we said it was number one and number two and number three almost, I think. What was that, Bruce? Well, first and foremost, team is the most important one. <laughs> and the team shifts 
right? The team changes. In fact, unfortunately, and we all see this, sometimes the team you begin with is not the team that you need to stay with as you grow, or they need to change their role. And that's hard because if it's a founder, maybe they're really great at developing, but not so great at managing and operating. So team by far is the most important pillar, but the other pillars change in terms of importance as you go from ideation all the way through traction. So the first is pretty obvious. It's product. You know, first comes product, which is, can you build it? Will people use it? Et cetera. And so we, in the book, we talk about these pillars and as they come to the fore, depending upon which value inflection point you're at, where you should put your attention. So I would say from ideation all the way up through what you might think of as MVP, by the way, I define MVP differently than others. So people all talk about product market fit. And while I understand why, I kind of twisted that a little bit. And I said, you know, without a market, there's no need for your product. So you need to engineer that market. So I think about MVP as being market product fit. And uh, I think this is critically important. So um, I know it's just a twist, semantical, but I do think it's important. So product kind of in the first phase of your company really is uh, your team and your product become important. Then it moves from there to... I would say revenue begins to come out, right? Revenue begins to emerge. You have a product, people are willing to pay for it. And, uh, and so now you're beginning to figure out, well, what does it take to create revenue? How much do I have to spend? You know, what do I need to spend a dollar of, of marketing to generate or in sales to generate some sort of return for the company? So that's when, you know, revenue kind of begins to take the most important role in the company. And then, strangely enough, as you move from that and you've kind of figured out team and product and how you're messaging all of this, to scale, you need systems. And so systems comes to the fore as you move from MVR to minimum viable traction. And in the book, I do do define what that is, what MBT is. In the SaaS world, um, it's really roughly around 10 million in ARR. And it takes usually from when you declare MVP three years or so to get there. If you're not on that kind of trajectory, then you're not under the battery ventures sort of T2, D3 model. Um, I call it the Fibonacci series of, of SaaS, but I think that battery came up with a better term. So the net of it is that these different pillars, they come to the fore depending upon where you are in your journey. And you need to recognize this because if you don't invest in those at the right time, if you invest in one over another at the wrong time, for example, trying to put a lot of hire a big sales team and marketing before you've reached MBR, you're going to burn a lot of capital. And the likelihood if you can't achieve certain revenue and other objectives with the capital that you currently have to reach one of these new value inflection points, it becomes increasingly unlikely that you will raise more capital. It's more likely that you'll either sell the company or it'll dissolve. So that's why um, I talk about these four pillars and they come into existence from the very moment you come up with your idea. And so in the book, I talk about where to put your emphasis from ideation all the way through this point called MBT. So we're going to wrap up with a concept that I love in Silicon Valley. It's all about pattern recognition. They say that's why VCs are good at what they do because they have pattern recognition, but also a four-time successful entrepreneur. You've seen a lot of patterns. Are there two or three things that you can tell um, our audience that like, these are the lessons I've learned from being a multi-time successful entrepreneur and VC that everyone needs to think about as they go through their entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I think you need to be self-aware. You may want to be a CEO, but are you really the right person to be the CEO? It's a very challenging, difficult job. 
And I understand if you came up with the concept of the company and you're sort of the heart and the soul of the product of the company, that it's very challenging to think about, well, I'm going to turn over the management of this company to somebody else. I know that's really hard to do. I know that that a lot of VCs end up not making that change because it's so difficult to make when it's forced. I think the companies where I where I've had the most success, the CEOs have either come up to that level and been able to do a great job, or the person who founded the company realizes no, they're not actually the right person, and so they step aside to take on a different role and find another person to do that. That's a, a tough thing. And I'd say it's one of the, the things that I would focus on, you know, sort of one of those soul searching exercises. If you're, if you're either running a company or if you're an investor, you know, you really have to, and I think most investors already know this, they have to really ask the hard question. And most do, do you really see yourself as a long-term CEO here? And, you know, they don't really want to get into a, a war around with the entrepreneurial team over this issue. The other thing I would say is that while they don't call themselves this, I think that the companies that have gone on most, I would say 90% that have gone on to significant success, the founder or the founding team are phenomenal market engineers. They know how to message, position, storytell, category create. They know how to do this. It's just innate. Tom Siebel would never call himself a market engineer, Mark Benioff. You know, I'm going to use the term that I came up with. But I would argue that they, Larry Ellison, you know, all the Aaron Levy. I mean, there's just a bunch of people, the people who have built these great companies. Nick, you know, you just talked about Nick Meta, you know, they're able to engineer a market. They're able to sort of get people to believe what they believe, to see the world as it could be from a world as it is. And they're very good and are deliberate about it. Tom asked me when I joined C3 a few years, C3 AI a few years ago, he said, I want to create a new category. I want to create the enterprise AI category. So we defined it and then we measured it. We measured it constantly. And Tom held us accountable to those results. How many people were looking for enterprise AI and how we did this. So if you are, I think the secret sauce is to learn how to become a, not just a product engineer, but a market engineer. And, you know, I'm biased because those are the concepts that I formulated from the lessons I learned over 40 years. So I didn't come up with all the ideas here. I just put them into sort of an organized structure and came up with a name up for it. So you can disagree with the name, but, but the concept I think remains, you need to become a phenomenal market engineer if you want to build a great company. So those are the, those are probably a couple of the most important. Well, I'm going to move away from the traction gap and, and all your great insights for existing entrepreneurs and executives. To my last question, there's a lot of either recent college graduates or someone ready to graduate next year, and they want to be the next Bruce Cleveland or Tom Siebel. What advice do you give to that recent college graduate to be able to have this level of career success? Well, that's a great question. It's probably the same one. You know, The answer I'm going to give is the same one I gave to my daughters who have done quite well uh, in tech. And it's the one that I give to a lot that when I speak, I've been fortunate that because of the book, I have opportunity to speak at Stanford and Columbia and some phenomenal schools. What I tell people is instead of going to a small company first, go to a large successful company, go to one that has created a new category, learn, go hold different jobs, take different roles, go meet with the different executives in that company and find out what they did. Not the ones, you know, that inherited 
the company, you know, when it's large and working, but try to find out the people who were part of the founding team or, or people who are potentially still there, but maybe in a different role. You need to do that because that's the part of that pattern matching. You need to learn how that company operates, how it works. And also maybe more importantly, what doesn't work inside of it. And I would move from a large company to a medium-sized company to a small company. I would do that over the course of you know, maybe 10, 12 years. If you move into a startup up front, you don't really have any idea about what's required, what's needed. You don't have the foundational skills necessarily. doesn't mean you won't be successful. It just means that the, the journey to that may be fraught with some peril. So I suggest starting large, moving your way down. By the way, I recommend the same thing for investors. I say, don't start with a VC firm. You don't know anything about how to operate a company. Go join a company, learn what it takes. Then when you join a venture firm, you're going to be a lot more valuable to the, the entrepreneurs that you work with. So that's what my advice would be. You know, Don't start small, start big, learn from the best, and then move your way downward. Great advice, Bruce. And since we got to wrap up on this episode of Metrics That Measure Up, I also would encourage those people who want to learn from the best, go ahead and subscribe to Metrics That Measure Up. We have the founders or co-founders of LinkedIn, DocuSign, Gong, Clary, you know, John Miller from Orketo, right? One of the co-founders. So really appreciate your time, Bruce. It means the world to me. Thank you. You bet. And to our listening audience, it would mean the world to us if you're enjoying and finding value in our podcast, please go ahead and subscribe to Metrics to Measure Up on your favorite podcast app and give us that five-star rating and give us recommendations on how we can make the show even better. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.